0: on the way. Good! Yeah. Garland spins down the lane and it in. This crowd has rocket. Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the fear the fro- Pah, oh, it! In the illustrious words of Ricky Rubio. What? What the hell just happened? Two and a half minutes left roughly. Two minutes, 40 seconds left in this game. The Cavaliers were up by 10 points on the Los Angeles Clippers. We were this close. My fingers are extremely close together from a L.A. sweep exceptionally close at halftime and even at the end of the third quarter, only to be blown open by the Cavaliers in the fourth quarter. Kevin Love sinking threes. Donovan Mitchell sinking threes. And then they go up 10. There's two minutes, 40 seconds left. Mistake after mistake. Urgency gone. Turnovers. Fouls letting them live at the line. 18 free throws in the fourth quarter. They gave up points at the line. They gave up points in transition on steals and a couple of... Bad foul calls, or lack of goal ten calls, and that's all she wrote. And the Clippers kept the defensive pressure up. Norman Powell came through when it mattered. 13 points in the fourth quarter, 17 points overall, 5 of 6 from the floor. Paul George, another excellent night despite the fact that he basically vanished. Only 3 points in the fourth quarter. If I told you the Clippers came back from 10 down with 2.5 minutes left, And Paul George was not the reason. That doesn't even seem like a plausible scenario. And just to really salt the fro wounds. The man who led the way has been objectively dog shit until tonight. He was shooting 26% from outside and 40% from the field. That's Jay Crowder numbers. 40% actually. 39% from the field would be Jay Crowder numbers. Norman Powell is just a hair on an asshole, above Jay Crowder this season. And he's the man who sank us. Now, I'm happy for the Clippers. Again, I hold no ill will towards that team, and their pre- and post-game host, Adam Oslin, will almost certainly join me on one of the Fear the Fro episodes. He's probably more likely to now, so I'm going to have to eat some humble pie. But I will do it, because I deserve it. I knew, even as the Hawks were beating the bucks, I made it a point not to say the word "bucks" aloud on Twitter or just out of my stupid mouth because I didn't want to jinx it. But I was too eager to start throwing a parade for reaching the top of the regular season standings, as if that matters in the long run. But I wanted it. There's a part of me, the superstitious part of me, that believes that I caused this. And I know that that's not true. What really caused this is that for some un- Believable reason we decided to play a coro for nearly 20 minutes and leave Osman rotting on the bench. Fire up the old hate. Let the flow through you. Never underestimate the amount of sensitivity and spite at every level. Things got a little dark. What are we doing? And I know we keep telling ourselves that, well, he's a defensive stopper. The refs definitely don't believe that. This man could not get a call to save his life, and he didn't deserve any, don't get me wrong. But if he thinks that he can play as physical as he can and run through screens and try to face guard guys, he will never get those whistles because they're putting him on the superstars. And Paul George will get that whistle every day of the week. Norman Powell gets that whistle. 22 free throws oftentimes doesn't happen in a single game if you're wondering how a team can come back from 10 points down with two and a half minutes left that is how stoppages turnovers fast break dunks by Terrence Mann when he jumps the passing lane those are easy points quick buckets time saved and then at the end of the game you find yourself in this half to foul scenario which is just a brutal slow drip way to lose i should have recorded the lakers celebration to just pat on the back of this so you could hear the wild mood swings that i am experiencing at this very moment i don't understand what jb was thinking there a day after what was one of the best coaching adjustments at halftime that we've seen in his tenure as a cavalier coach this is unprecedented in junkyard dog history <laughs> after that <laughs> halftime speech we're giving it <laughs> to john You remember that moment? I do. Like it was yesterday. Because it was yesterday. However, today, we saw a game where he opted to play Jetty Osman three minutes to Okoro's 17. Meanwhile, Dean Wade only played 11 minutes. Dean Wade had two big three-pointers in the second quarter. That accounted for all six points of his. If you want to try to tell me that, oh, well, look at how much George fell off in the second half. That had a lot to do with Okoro. Sure. You want to believe that. I don't. Ugh. And I know, I'm piling on Coro. It's not really all on him. To be honest, it was a whole team collapse. And nobody expects him to win games for us. If anything, I've been spoiled by how clutch Mitchell has been and how Love's come up big. And unfortunately, it just wasn't there at the end. There were some bad turnovers. That Garland turnover to Reggie Jackson was a killer because we were already in the bonus. Would it maybe have turned out differently? I don't know. But when it came down to every possession mattering at the end, I can't help but obsess about the the foul, they called The offensive foul on Karis Levert on the corner three-pointer or the uncalled net grab dunk by Terrence Mann. But certainly the Cavs had plenty of mistakes to compound the issues all on their own. Take the officials out of it because the officials did not lose the Cavs this game. The Cavs lost the Cavs this game. Coming into tonight, the Cavs had won six of the seven games where they had trailed by 10 points at some time in the game. They are the best team in the league at coming from behind when there is a double-digit deficit. So it would stand to reason that when they have a double-digit lead, this would be a team that's just hammering nails and coffins left and right and putting foots on throats because they have the firepower to do it. The Lakers, meanwhile, 0 for 6. That was the other stat they showed on the broadcast. But So the Cavs have been tested and they've responded time and time again. So to be on the other end of that for really the first time this season, you could make the argument, I guess, in the Raptors game that they sort of imploded in the fourth, but they didn't have a huge lead like this. To have a double-digit lead that late in the game and throw it away, oof, it stings. And, I, and these are probably the times that I should sit back and regroup in the morning because I want this to remain largely a positive podcast. So let's look at the positives for the night. Evan Mobley dominated, 12 points in his first shift. Yes, he fouled out tonight, but my God, was he good. And his little fall away push hooks, they were going on everybody. Zubach is leading the league in blocks at 2.6 blocks a game. And it did not look like Mobley or Allen were the least bit intimidated by him. Allen destroyed him on the boards and Mobley was dunking and hooking over everybody. The bigs in general were fantastic. Kevin Love just consistently delivering as that first big off the bench. And it's nice because on any given night, tonight, I felt like all three bigs showed up. We got a good game from Love, especially in the second half. We got rebounding from Jared Allen. A 20-rebound night tonight to go along with 10 points. And in the Lakers game that they won, keep in mind, Evan Mobley and Jared Allen were terrible. In the first half, a lot of that was due to them picking up a lot of fouls, six fouls for six from the floor, zero points for both of them collectively in the first half of that Lakers game. And then in the third quarter, Jared Allen matched the production of the entire Lakers team, 16 points and nine rebounds for him. In that quarter, the Lakers just 16 points for them as a team, and we saw what happened. A 17-0 run by the Lakers at the end of the third, early fourth quarter to win that game going away, and all the guys who were hurting them in the first half, very muted second halves. LeBron James, Russell Westbrook shooting over 70% in the first half, shooting over 65% from deep in the first half, and their fortunes changed dramatically. As we alluded to, I played the audio. JB gave a hell of a speech at halftime, it was reported. And what do you know? Grandpa Love and the Cavaliers came back in the second half. And tonight, I thought perhaps we were going to see something similar. Out of the gates in the fourth, Love leading the way. Cavs sort of blew it open, but it didn't happen. We don't need to dwell on this. Let's focus on what's ahead of us. The Sacramento Kings, another late game on the West Coast where they'll take on a team which has had some changes, some additions in the offseason. The big differences between this year and last year so far are that De'Aaron Fox has had a bit of a renaissance, a return to form after he signed a big max extension. He had a dip in production. There was questions as to whether the Kings should have kept him or Halliburton. Now, that's no shade to Halliburton. He's been tremendous too, and you could still very much make the argument that he's the better of the two guards. But De'Aaron Fox is certainly having... Quite a statistical bounce back, and his fit alongside Red Velvet, the big trade acquisition for the Sacramento Kings in the offseason, Kevin Herter, coming over from Atlanta for a protected first-round pick, has looked excellent. And that brings me to the NBA subject I wanted to touch on on today's podcast, which is who has won the offseason trades? The subject, of course, has been big amongst Cavs fans, and it's, it's a given that Donovan Mitchell is number one in my book. I'm not, this isn't really centered around him. This is more, who do I put two through five? Because Donovan Mitchell, of course, one of the most impactful players in the league, certainly in the discussion for MVP or all NBA honors at a minimum, and a guy who's increased his stats pretty much across the board, a true shooting percentage of 64.6%, which is higher than he had in Utah. Utah, 57%. His points per game are up, nearly six points a game. His three-point percentage is up nearly 10%, and his field goal percentage is up almost 6%. So he is leading the Cavs in every way and doing it with some of the most efficient performances you'll see. Now, that true shooting percentage, that is an important number. The 64.6%, 65% true shooting percentage is truly an elite showing. And amongst the various trade acquisitions this offseason, we've seen multiple guys flirting with that. Right on the brink is Donovan Mitchell. Another good shooting game. He could find himself above that. But also, look around at some of the other guys. In my view, number two on this most impactful trade acquisition list comes from the same deal that brought Mitchell to Cleveland, and that is, of course, Lowry Markkinen, who moved from the Cavs in a role where he was not needed to do the primary scoring, he wasn't needed to do the primary rim protection or even rebounding, and he's increased his role and importance in that jazz system to the tune of 22 points a game, nine rebounds a game, three assists a game, and he's shooting better from the floor. Now, his three-point percentage has dipped. It started out hot. He is now shooting sub-30%, but we saw a similar tale from Lowry Markin when he was in Cleveland. His first half offensive production was not very good he was off but he ramped up as the season went on and the role he's playing with the jazz is very interesting because he certainly entered a high pressure situation in the sense that he was coming to a team which has blown up their core traded away mitchell and gobert a defensive player of the year and now he and O'Linick, very different big men stretch bigs would be manning the front court and that team has done better than anyone expected. Currently leading the West, in part because they played 12 games, but they're nine and three and winning more than anybody expected. You could make the argument based on contract, if we factored in contract size, that perhaps he's been even more impactful than Donovan Mitchell. And people who question paying him 16 to $17 million a season when the Cavs acquired him from the Bulls last year, that looks foolish now. That is an extreme value. And Lowry Markinen is quite the reclamation in the last year and a half because now he looks like one of the most desirable contracts on the books for that Utah Jazz team. The way that Donovan Mitchell has raised the whole of the Cleveland Cavaliers, he's my 1A. I do think Lowry Markinen is number two. Number three for me would be another guy who has come into a situation where he's been able to complement the roster very well and provide more than what his contractual value is, and that is the man that we're going to see in the next game against the Sacramento Kings. That, to me, is Kevin Herter. Herter! Now, I know what you're saying. The Hawks got rid of Herter, brought in DeJounte Murray, who's a better player. I mean, Murray is having a good start of his own with the Hawks, helped lead them to victory tonight against the Bucks. He's scoring more. He's averaging two and a half steals a game. He's making more threes, but... The reason I wouldn't give him that distinction is because he was already an all-star guard. We knew what he could do in San Antonio. He's doing very similar numbers with the Hawks. They are a good team, but the surprise element or the exceeding expectations element isn't there in the same way it is with some of these other guys. But here is why. I am more impressed with what Herter's doing. He was cast out to make room, and in going to the Kings, He's had more success than anyone would have anticipated. He is one of, if not the best, three-point shooter in the NBA. He's first amongst players who make more than three three three-pointers a game, shooting 52% from three right now, 50% from the floor. We spoke about it on Friday's episode that Boyan Bogdanovich at the time was doing 50-50-90. Now he strung together a couple bad games and dipped just slightly. But the fact that Kevin Herter, a guard, is a true shooting percentage of 67.7% is unbelievable. Most of the guys who lead true shooting percentage are big men who can shoot free throws and are fairly efficient. Bull Bull is leading the league right now. Uh, Mikhail Bridges is always up there. Nikola Jokic is always up there. Steph Curry, he's nearly 69%. So there are guards who do it. But the Cavaliers, for example, have two guys who are flirting with 65%. Kevin Love at 64.9%, and of course, Donovan Mitchell, as I alluded to. So you have bore witness to how good those two players have been for the Cavs this season. So that should put into context for you just how difficult it is to do what Kevin Herter is doing with the Kings. And he's making the threes from all over the court. He can do it on the run, both elbows, the corners. This is a guy who is deadly, and he simply didn't get the platform that he's given with the Kings and now he's increased his scoring average by nearly five points, and his efficiency has gone through the roof. So we'll get a look at Red Velvet firsthand against the Cavs, but he is not a guy you can afford to leave open. So number two for me, Lowry Markinen. Number three, Kevin Herter. Number four, this is a toss-up. In all likelihood, In all likelihood, this should be Murray, because he's on a cheap deal right now, even though he'll have to be extended sooner. And yes, maybe he's not doing more than what he was doing, but he's been impactful. He still put up numbers. Some people thought he would regress playing alongside Trey Young, and he has not done that. So credit to him there. I think Sexton has an argument in his favor, and that's in part because of his contract, and it's in part because his recent string of games, these last six games where they finally started giving him minutes, he's averaging twenty nine minutes a game, and he's putting up eighteen points a game on 49-43 splits. 43% from three-point land is excellent. So that would put him back in the conversation as having returned to form and getting close to the type of output that he was doing during his time with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He's got more talent around him than during his era where he was the Cavs' leading scorer, but certainly still showing that he's quite the scoring spark plug and he's doing it very efficiently. So one of those guys would probably be my pick there. Some other guys I think that deserve to be mentioned. Boyan Bogdanovich, as we said, you know, just one game ago, he was one of only six guys doing more than twenty points a game on over sixty-five percent true shooting percentage. So he's had a couple of rough games here. Certainly didn't look great against the Cavaliers when they played, but the fact that they extended him less than a month into the season shows you just how impactful he's been, and he cost them nothing but Kelly Olynyk and Saban Lee. So I don't know how you could view that trade as anything other than a massive win. And finally, Contavious Caldwell-Pope. He is shooting excellent at one point on slightly below three three-pointers made a game. He was shooting the best three-point percentage in the league. At fifty-four percent. So even though Herter's really the best three-point shooter in the league in the sense that his volume is crazy. He's shooting seven and a half threes a game. Cantavius has plugged into a Nuggets team which is playing very well, seven and three at the moment, and looks to be a good fit for what they need. Tenacious defender, good outside shooter, and just an excellent role player to plug in alongside all the guys who've come back. Jamal Murray, Jokic there, Michael Porter Jr. And of course, Aaron Gordon. So those would be the guys that are near the top of my list for most impactful trades. And we'll see how that shifts as the season goes on. I think Colin Sexton has a pretty high ceiling if he keeps getting minutes and he keeps working his way back from that injury. But he's been very good as of late. And we will see what happens with some of these other guys. Will and come down to earth? I know the small sample size would lead you to believe that The Jazz aren't going to finish the season as the best team in the Western Conference. But certainly, I do think there's room to believe that perhaps we overestimated the impact that Rudy Gobert had on their ability to win, and that there is something to be said for chemistry, balance, floor spacing, cohesion, and just the general pride of players to disprove this idea that they're not winning basketball players. If anyone should have a chip on their shoulder, It should be Colin Sexton and even Lowry Markkinen to some degree because he was here for one season. He didn't even get a chance to prove that what we saw last year in the Cavs making a big leap was something that he was critical to. So certainly that's a trade that's worked out on both ends, but we'll get a chance in this upcoming Kings game to see yet another trade acquisition who has been supremely impactful and that is Red Velvet. We'll get to see an excellent rookie and Keegan Murray, and De'Aaron Fox and Sabonis playing very well in their own right, but they're very established stars, so we should have expected as much. Anyway, that is the Fear the Fro podcast for today. I'm Bob Schmidt. Follow me at Fear the Fro pod on Twitter. Please rate, subscribe, like the podcast if you did, in fact, like the podcast. Certainly, I can understand why you might not after what was a fairly negative Kicking the nuts. God damn it, we lost podcast. But the next one won't be that way. So join me then on Fear the Fro. live This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.